Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Well, I think, yes, I think it's, it's already clear that we've entered the greatest crisis in capitalism's history. I think Alan uh, mentioned last night, the IMF said that this would be the worst crisis since the Great Depression. And I think that really is uh, very much an underestimation. The Bank of England are far less optimistic. You know, they say that this would be the worst crisis for at least 300 years. But I think in reality, none of them have any idea. Uh, there's no parallel really for the period that we're, we've entered into. And Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think there's a truth to that, because if you can draw out the processes taking place in society, you can understand them. It does help guide our perspectives for the future. And I think it's really worth discussing this period, that of the 1930s and the Depression, since really I think most people's consciousness today has been really shaped by a long period of capitalist upswing, in particular the post-war boom, but even the kind of period after that, even if uh, people didn't live through it themselves. Now, of course, there have been serious crises since the 30s. Uh, there was a world crisis in the 1970s, obviously 2008, and since then, there have been numerous smaller recessions. But many people, I think, still believe that these are just kind of you know, temporary blips and that conditions will return ultimately to those uh, that we had in the 50s and the 60s, you know, conditions where there was full, full employment, strong welfare states, you know, in other words, that we can return to like oh, capitalism that could be made to work in the interests of uh, working class people. Uh, and I think that's uh, false, but I think it's worth looking back to what actually happened you know, before the post-war boom, it, you know, with the conditions of the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. as really a reminder to us of what capitalism actually looks like uh, when it's in a deep crisis. And I think although the current crisis will indeed look uh, very different in many respects, I do think that the period we're entering into will have much more in common with the conditions of the 30s than uh, of the post-war boom or more recently. And therefore, the, you know, the key things that I really want to draw out uh, from this talk is what effects did the crisis have on the consciousness of millions of workers? And importantly, what effect it had on the class struggle? And therefore kind of use that as a guide to what changes we might expect to see uh, over the coming period ahead. Now I'll start with a brief summary of what actually happened in October 1929 with the Wall Street crash itself. You know, it's gone down uh, in history as uh, Sarah said, this kind of legendary crisis of capitalism that everyone's kind of uh, taught about, uh, at least in a superficial way. It's legendary in terms of the, the dramatic crash that took place on the stock exchange and also the depth of the depression that followed. Now the crash actually began, uh, there was actually a downward drift of share prices on the stock exchange uh, during the preceding months of September and October. But the real slump actually began on Friday the 18th of October. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, a crash is not just a one-act drama. It doesn't just take place over a few hours or a day or two. It's actually unfolded over weeks. And uh, the decline got worse on uh, the Monday after that weekend. Uh, and it culminated in what was uh, referred to as Black Thursday on the 24th of October, which was actually 91 years ago yesterday. That's when the real panic uh, set in 
with uh, you know these chaotic scenes of Wall Street and you know, huge crowds gathering uh, outside on the streets, these wild rumors being circulated around. And uh, there was the, the phenomenon where some shares on the market couldn't actually be sold at all for any price. You know, you had what was uh, referred to as black holes appearing in the market. Um, <clears throat> now, in the afternoon of, uh, of that Thursday, the things were actually kind of temporarily stabilized. And that's because there was an emergency meeting of bankers who, you know, all the kind of top Wall Street bankers came together and they were scratching their heads saying, well, we've got to do something. And they kind of made a public announcement saying they'll do whatever it takes to support the market. Uh, and they, you know, they started buying up shares and so on. And this, this tended to calm things down. But that, that calm was only kind of uh, a brief respite as the slump actually restarted next Monday on the 28th. Uh, as it became clear, it became more and more public knowledge that actually the banks weren't actually supporting the market. And actually they were now secretly trying to frantically kind of save themselves and offload, uh, off, offload their positions. And this culminated the, the next day on uh, the kind of legendary Black Tuesday, where the fall in one day equaled the gains of all the previous 12 months. And uh, in just the first half hour of trading, 33 million shares were sold and prices fell by 13%. Now, like a typical day's trading would see, I think, between three to four million shares sold. It was considered drastic if five million went. Now, the decline continued until the 13th of November, by which point the stock exchange index uh, was 50% below its September high. Now, the government, of course, did try to intervene. Uh, they, they did what they could by cutting taxes. They also cut the interest rate. And this apparently well, appeared to initially stem the tide, so that from the start of 1930 to April, the market did actually recover by over 44%. And it's worth pointing out that that's actually quite similar to the situation that we see today, where actually the stock exchanges of the world crashed uh, dramatically in March of this year. Uh, and since then, they've actually gone back to just above uh, the previous peak after enormous government support. At least that's the case um, uh, with the New York Stock Exchange. Now, leading economists and kind of capitalists at the time, they were kind of rushing to kind of reassure everything, everyone that everything was fine, that you know, the clash was uh, just a blip, that actually the real economy was, uh, was, was absolutely fine, not to panic and so on. And you had Andrew Mellon, who was the Secretary of the US Treasury. He said at the time, the US economy is fundamentally sound. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that we've seen no shortage of politicians over the past few months saying effectively the same today, that actually, you know, everything's just a kind of, once we've uh, got a vaccine and once uh, you know, this, um, the COVID situation is under control, everything will just go back to normal uh, and you know, the, the, the economy will be fundamentally sound. But actually what happened in, uh, in June of 1930, the fall then uh, resumed and it did so to reach a new low in December, well below uh, the peak of uh, 1929. Now there are a few ups and downs, but, but the overall picture was a steady decline until the market reached rock bottom in July of 1932, by which point it uh, settled at 89% down from the record high of September uh, back in 29. Now, things stagnated until early 1933, after which point there was a kind of um, uh, an uptick on the stock exchange, but it was extremely shallow and, uh, and it remained so until 1937, again, after which point it again uh, collapsed. And it's, it's worth pointing out that the, the stock exchange, uh, which is only really kind of um, 
a not very good uh, kind of reflection of the underlying strength of the economy. It didn't actually reclaim its 1929 highs until September of 1954, which I think shows two things. Firstly, how deep the depression actually was during the 30s, uh, but also secondly, how overinflated the stock market was uh, uh, in September of 29. Now, the question that's been asked many times is, you know, why did the crash occur? Now, there's been various explanations, I think, ranging from the psychological, in that there was just a mass panic that gripped the minds of investors, to a combination of secondary factors. And in his famous book on the Wall Street crash, John Grau Brafe highlights uh, the following factors. He points to the dodgy corporate structures in the USA at the time, and the use of what they called uh, leveraged holding companies and investment trusts. Uh, and in a nutshell, these had the effect of multiplying gains when the market was rising. But that effect worked both ways. When the market crashed, the losses were multiplied. There's the banking structure. Uh, there was two major New York banks, but actually thousands of other smaller banks across the USA. And there was no federal insurance on deposits. So, you know, one bankruptcy could easily start a run on all the other banks. There was the practice of what they called trading on the margin, which really meant buying shares on credit. So, for example, you might buy shares priced at £1,000, but with only just £200 of your own cash, you would borrow the extra £800 from a bank. Now, that worked fine when the market was rising. And sometimes you saw um, shares rising by kind of 10, 15, 20% even in just one day, such as the kind of frenzy um, uh, running up to the crash. But, you know, when falling, obviously the banks then called in their loans. Many of these loans were then unpayable and that had uh, that had huge repercussions. There was also the unsound balance of foreign trade. So the USA had become a creditor nation following World War I. After the crash, clearly that credit then dried up. So the bankers were, of course, demanding payments from debtor countries in gold. Of course, these countries, these debts couldn't be paid. So the only option for these uh, debtor countries to eliminate their own deficits was either exporting more of their own commodities to the USA, and that was, of course, then blocked by tariffs, or by reducing their imports, which then cut the market for American goods. And then finally, there's also the unequal distribution of income. So I think in 1929, the richest 5% of uh, the US population received 33% of the wealth. So most of the demand in the economy had to come from the rich, either through kind of uh, you know, investment or kind of luxury uh, spending. And when that dried up, of course, it had a huge uh, impact. Now, it's worth pointing out that these secondary factors certainly had an influence on why the crash was so deep and why it turned into a depression. But I don't think really they explain why this took place in the first place. It's like when you hear the explanation of uh, the so-called credit crunch of 2007 as being the cause for the 2008 crash. Uh, you know, really, the, the crash was a product of all the accumulated contradictions of the previous period, culminating in what we, uh, we call as Marxists a crisis of overproduction. And you can see this. So from 1900 to 1929, there had in fact been a colossal development of the productive forces in the USA. The total wealth of the country increased from $86 billion to $361 billion. So that's over four times in just those three decades. From 1919 to 1929, the productivity of industry rose from between 40 to 50%. But at the same time, wages and prices remain, uh, remained stable, which had the effect of rapidly rising profits uh, for those at the top, but, and also an explosion of inequality. Now, the, um, the richest 0.1% of the population 
had the same income as the poorest 43%. So, of course, what were they going to do with all that uh, money? Well, of course, they're going to try and make more money, of course. And therefore, there was this kind of orgy of speculation on the stock exchange. And by even 1926, it was clear that there was a, a feverish speculative element to the boom. Uh, you know, profits as well as the stock market were booming. Industrial profits rose 156% in just the five years before 29. But in that same period, industrial share prices trebled. And that was really indicative of this massive rise in fictitious capital uh, that was taking place. And with the markets becoming saturated worldwide, the ruling class could clearly get richer just through speculation on the stock exchange than through actually investing their wealth back into production. Now, the system was already reaching its limits uh, by late 1928 to early 1929. And again, this ties back to what I was saying about it being you know, a classic case of overproduction, which really is inherent in the dynamics of capitalism, since production is only for profit. Now, as Mark explained, the working class produced all value in the form of commodities, but they only paid a portion of that value in the form of wages. But of course, for capitalists to realize a profit, they have to sell the commodities that are being produced by the workers in their factories and, and workplaces and so on. The problem is how can they do this if the working class as a whole only receives a fraction of the total value that they're producing? Now, as the economists put it, the problem is where will the effective demand in the economy come from uh, in order for all these goods uh, to be sold? Now, as Marxists, we understand that there's three main methods that the ruling class can use to overcome this contradiction. Otherwise, you could say, well, why isn't the system permanently in crisis? But you can see how all of these were reaching their limits in the late 1920s. So firstly, you had the expansion of world trade. Now remember, this was a time when most of the world was directly colonized by a few imperialist powers. The USA had actually expanded into areas of Latin America, and uh, if, if not kind of directly colonizing these countries, they effectively were colonies, places like Cuba, Nicaragua, also the Philippines as well. But of course, there were limits to that expansion when the kind of the whole world is already being carved up. Secondly, there's uh, um, what, Marxist uh, term investment in department two goods, which means kind of you know, more means of production, uh, essentially. Things that aren't gonna be consumed by the working class, but things that kind of are, are to be invested in by capitalists, things like more machinery, building these factories, purchasing raw materials, infrastructure, and so on. But actually investment was uh, slowing down in the 1920s. So the markets were becoming increasingly saturated and therefore, you know, it wasn't even possible to use the existing industrial capacity uh, and make a profit. There was, I think, industrial capacity was only about 80% um, used at this time. So if you couldn't already use what you had uh, invested, why would you invest in, in building more capacity? And then thirdly, there was the use of credit. So massive amounts uh, were being lent to other countries so that they could buy American uh, goods. Uh, there was also a huge expansion of credit domestically so, you know, people could afford to buy cars or other big ticket items um, by paying for them on payment plans. There's also, as I mentioned, this huge expansion of credit so that uh, investors could buy shares on the stock exchange uh, without putting up the full uh, value. But all of these things have a limit, of course. And you could see the economy was starting to slow down by mid-1929. So industrial production in the USA actually fell from an index of 127 in June of 29 to 122 in September and 117 in October. And remember, this was at a time when leading economists and politicians were saying, actually, the economy is, is fine. You know, the crash was an accident. But really, you can see from these figures that the decline had already set in. And I think what 
quite stark was the figures for car production, which declined from 660,000 units uh, in March of 29 uh, to 319,000 by October. So more than halved in just seven months. Now, after the crash took place in late October, those figures then collapsed even more dramatically. But um, <clears throat> it, it kind of shows how things were already um, going downwards. Now, there were various incidents cited as uh, the cause of the bubble ultimately bursting. There was uh, an unfavorable ruling against a utility company in Massachusetts, and it was Boston Edison, which among other things said that the shares had been massively overvalued. Uh, there was also the collapse of uh, the Clarence Hartley Financial Group in Britain, uh, which came as a huge shock uh, to investors, really spooked a lot of people. Uh, but whatever it was, it was merely the accident that kind of allowed for this deeper necessity of the bubble that had to burst to express itself. Now, what happened then on the stock exchange, you know, was really a surface feature of a far deeper process of this crisis of overproduction. And uh, the contradictions had built up to this tipping point whereby it took, you know, one small incident or incidents to really transform the whole quality of this situation from a boom into a slump. And it's uh, similar to a forest fire, whereby, you know, it takes a long period uh, for, the, for the forest to become dried out. But uh, at a certain point, all it takes is a small spark to set the whole thing ablaze. Now, what were the consequences? Well, in the USA, it, uh, it gave rise to conditions known as the Great Depression. And the crisis on Wall Street then quickly rippled through to the rest of the economy. And uh, as we say, like cause becomes effect and effect becomes cause. The whole thing entered into a downward spiral and all those secondary factors that I outlined earlier then came into play. And the collapse of uh, share prices meant that loans taken out to buy shares you know, on the margin were then quickly called in. And you could see how credit, which was used previously to expand the boom, had now turned into its opposite. And instead, you had these unpayable debts, which now had to be repaid. And a wave of defaults then led to a crisis of the whole banking system. And as I said, with no federal insurance on bank deposits, the collapse of one bank meant losing your entire savings. So hence, runs on banks became very commonplace. So that between 1929 and 33, over 9,000 US banks uh, collapsed. Now, even before the crash, companies were cutting production. As I, as I said, the market was uh, becoming saturated. But now as both demand and credit dried up, so did investment and production. Again, this is the thing of cause becoming an effect and effect becoming cause. You're into this vicious uh, downward spiral whereby millions of workers were being made unemployed as they could no longer be profitably exploited by the ruling class. That then led to a vicious circle of a further collapse in demand and a wave of corporate bankruptcies. Now you can see this in the figures, the Federal Reserve Board of um, Industrial Production the index declined by almost 50% uh, between 1929 to 32. Now, the crisis of overproduction was really graphically illustrated by the figures for capacity utilization. In 1920, it was uh, 94%, and then averaged about 84% over the decade of the 20s, you know, the so-called uh, roaring 20s. But by 1930, it had fallen to 66%, and it reached a low of 42% in 1932. Now, in July of that year, steel operations in the USA were only functioning at 12% of their capacity, which I think very graphically shows uh, the depth of the crisis. And the only way for the ruling class to eliminate this so-called excess capacity was really to close down factories and massively lower prices. Now, that, of course, in introduced deflation into the economy since the un unemployed couldn't afford to spend. And those that could 
still afford to buy things. We're very reluctant to spend uh, on you know, big ticket items today, you know, when prices would be cheaper in the future. And that deflation then also meant that servicing debts became relatively more expensive, and that further dragged down the economy. Now, the effects of the, the crash, as with any crisis under capitalism, was of course the working class and the poorest who were made to fit the bill. And you saw a massive attack on the already low living standards of workers and poor farmers. And, and therefore the whole, well, the economic crisis was transferred into a huge social crisis. Unemployment, of course, skyrocketed. So in 1929, a significant 1.5 million people were already un unemployed. That's about 3% of the workforce. But that then leapt to, to more than 12 million by 1932, and an estimated uh, 13 to 15 million by March of 1933. That was about 25% of all workers, 35, so 37% if you exclude farm workers. And overall, it's thought that 34 million Americans belong to families with no regular full-time wage earner. And therefore, with no federal system of social security, workers were forced to turn to what limited uh, charitable relief existed, or otherwise face starvation. So, you know, unable to pay the rent, millions of people ended up homeless or traveling the country in search of work. It, hundreds of thousands ended up living in what became known as Hoovervilles, which really were kind of shanty towns built on either derelict land or rubbish dumps and places like this. And in the context of those conditions, the bosses sought to, to restore profitability by driving down wages and increasing hours. So you had the phenomenon of sweatshops appearing everywhere. You had starvation wages were common, as was child labor. And many workers were forced to work 60 or 70 hours a week or more. Now with the shock of the crisis and the, with the threat of destitution, and really the lack of leadership coming from the trade unions and the workers' parties, the bosses were largely successful in these attacks. Now, just to speak a bit about the global consequences, obviously the crisis in the USA was very quickly to become a, a worldwide crisis. And that's because in 1929, there were just four countries in the world that contributed up to 70% of world GDP. That was the USA, Britain, Germany, and France. Uh, and they all saw kind of a dramatic collapse in their production as the system was so interconnected. Now, in June 1930, the US introduced the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, and that was to try and protect US agricultural capitalists in particular. And that had a devastating impact on the agricultural economies of Central Europe, as now the main market for their exports was now closed off. And uh, places like this have borrowed heavily from French and British banks, as had uh, a lot of German industry. And of course, when when uh, those debts were then defaulted on, it drove Britain and France into financial crisis, and that then rippled over back into US banks, as I said, the whole, whole system was interconnected. Now, eventually, Britain was forced off the gold standard and was forced to devalue its currency, but soon every country had to follow suit, as uh, all the ruling classes were trying to maintain a share of a declining world market through com you know, competitive devaluations, with the imposition of tariffs and quotas, in other words, through a trade war, and therefore, US imports and exports declined by 70% between 29 to 32. And actually, world trade in 1933 was less than a third of its 29 level. Now, it's worth pointing out that I think the collapse of world trade was inevitable due to this unavoidable slump in production and investment. But the policies of protectionism and devaluation therefore kind of inevitably followed. But they had the effect of exacerbating the slump. They helped turn it from you know, a recession in, into a deep depression. And I think, you know, whilst today a lot of the kind of capitalist strategists are, are warning against uh, a return to protectionism, 
really, I think they can warn all they like, but it's it's really built into the logic of competition. You know, between a, you know a scramble for a share of a declining world market, each national ruling class is going to try and pass the burden of the crisis onto others. Now, I want to talk a bit about um, the New Deal in the United States. As by 1933, you know, the world was clearly in the midst of a very severe depression. And from the standpoint of the ruling class, conditions in the USA were actually getting critical. Now, Herbert Hoover, who was the president at the time of the crash, he generally followed this uh, kind of laissez-faire approach to handling the crisis. He said the state really shouldn't intervene. And therefore, uh, although taxes and interest rates were lowered to try and uh, encourage investments, since avenues for profitable investment were so small and actually in decline, these measures ended up having little effect. Hoover's commitment to balanced budgets meant that government expenditure during this period was actually cut back. And since tax receipts had collapsed, you know, government spending therefore also had to be cut. And unlike today, the banks were actually allowed to collapse, wiping out deposited savings in the process. And with no welfare, the ground was being pre uh, prepared for a social explosion. Now, for millions of people, the irrationality of the system was, was very clear to see. You had, on, on the one hand, millions of tons of food around, uh, but it wasn't profitable to transport it or to sell it, and therefore it was left to rot in the fields. You had warehouses literally full of clothing, but people couldn't afford it. So, you know, they were walking around barefoot, wearing rags uh, and so on. There was lots of uh, empty houses, but, you know, you had people living on the streets or in these Hooverville shanty towns. And therefore, you know, people began more and more to get organized. You had unemployed councils established all over the country, typically led by communists, and they organized people to resist evictions, as well as to pr uh, pressure the relief commission to try and ensure families uh, obtained aid. But more alarmingly for the ruling class were the number of clashes with the police uh, by the poor taking matters into their own hands. So actually from 1931 onwards, you had the phenomenon of hundreds or sometimes even thousands of unemployed workers would storm factories demanding work from the bosses or storming government buildings to demand food and shelter. You also had farmers were being thrown off the land in their thousands uh, as the banks were foreclosing the, the, the mortgages. That led to widespread re uh, violence and rebellion in the, in the countryside. And in the communities more and more began to organize to fight off the bailiffs and the police when they were uh, trying to carry out evictions. And remember that this was a population that was largely armed. Uh, or you had the, they were uh, blockading roads to try and stop cheap produce from elsewhere uh, from reaching the towns and undercutting the local farmers. So in January of 1933, he had a, uh, Edward O'Neill, who was the head of the Farm Bureau Federation. He warned a Senate committee. He said that unless something is done for the American farmer, we'll have a revolution in the countryside within less than 12 months. You also had increasingly workers began to organize self-help groups to try and bypass the, the restrictions of the market. And one you know, very notable example was in the coal region of Pennsylvania, where tens of thousands of unemployed miners began digging small uh, pits on company property. They were trucking bootleg coal into the cities and they were selling it below market price. Now, when the police tried to prosecute uh, workers involved in this, actually no jury would convict them. And it showed this kind of basic class solidarity. And this was very dangerous from the point of view of the ruling class. You know, the fact of workers beginning to organize production and distribution themselves and kind of bypassing the capitalist market and overriding capitalist private property. Now, at the same time, the ruling class were increasingly losing confidence in their own ability to rule. And uh, there was one Rexford Tugwell, who was one of the architects of the New Deal. He summed up the situation. 
And uh, he said, I do not think it is too much to say that on March the 4th, which was the day of the general election, we were confronted with a choice between an orderly revolution, a peaceful and rapid departure from past concepts, and a violent and disorderly overthrow of the whole capitalist structure. And that that really was kind of um, in, behind the, the election of Roosevelt in 1933. Uh, when he came to power, he had re really no alternative but to act. And therefore he reorganized the banking system, which by that point had almost completely collapsed. But he also introduced uh, the New Deal. Now, I want to raise this because there's a lot of myths about the New Deal. And uh, you often hear today, you know, calls for a new New Deal, typically a Green New Deal. But the reality of it was that it was really a program of reform legislation that was an attempt to rescue capitalism from itself. And uh, the, they set up workfare schemes, you know, employing millions of workers on construction and con conservation projects, although no, not on full wages. Uh, they provided billions of dollars to fund over hundreds of thousands of uh, construction projects. You know, it's thought that about 80% of all public construction in the USA from 33 to 37 was funded by the government. They also passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, which really was to try and prevent a race to the bottom by the capitalists. And this was because by this point, wages had really been driven down to starvation levels. And of course, it was rational for each boss to do this in order to try and increase their own profits. Of course, you know, they have to cut, uh, cut their own costs. But the overall effect of that was to reduce uh, the overall effect of demand in the economy, as you know, who is then going to be able to buy what is actually being produced? So the government had to kind of step in to effectively suspend antitrust laws and they actually brought leading capitalists of each industry together to draft what they call a code of fair competition. The idea was to try and regulate their sector and they would set minimum wages, hours, prices, they put quotas and output and so on. And it was effectively giving monopoly powers over whole industries to a layer of capitalists in order to try and boost profitability. And really it was a tacit admission that the market had ultimately failed and that they needed an element of planning to get the economy going again. But no, it was not planning in a socialist way, you know, by the working class in order to meet the needs of society, but planning by the bosses in order to boost their own profitability. Now, Roosevelt also dealt with overproduction by, of course, destroying the productive forces, uh, and therefore he gave subsidies to farmers uh, to not produce. And that's because farm prices had collapsed by over 50% uh, between 29 and 32, and uh, in the show, despite people starving, there was still massive overproduction from the standpoint of what could be sold profitably on the market. But that destruction of uh, you know, the productive forces, of course, wasn't going to be done by farmers to themselves. You know, they weren't going to close their own farms down. So in spring of 1933, the government set up the Agricultural Adjustment Agency to try and administer subsidies. The problem was, though, that millions of acres of crops had already been planted and millions of animals had already been born. And therefore, farmers were then paid to destroy 10 million acres of cotton, which was a quarter of that year's crop, and slaughter 6 million piglets. Now, this in particular caused enormous uproar. So you had Henry Wallace, who was the Secretary for Agriculture at the time. He, uh, he was publicly trying to reassure people. You know, he, he tried to explain, you know, don't worry, this is just simply the logic of capitalism. So uh, there's no need to panic. There's no, no one should be uh, angry about this. And he argued falsely that nobody had been morally indignant when American industry had reduced its output uh, by about $20 billion worth of goods over the previous years. But in doing so, really, he just kind of sh shone a light onto the real workings of capitalism. And it was, it was clear that the, the whole irrationality of the system uh, was very evident for everyone.
Now, over the course of the New Deal, various other reforms were carried out in order to try and stabilize the system. Uh, runs on banks were put to, the, to an end through a federal insurance scheme on deposits. Debt relief was provided to mortgage holders by means of government payments to the banks. And not only did this prevent thousands of foreclosures, but it also helped prop up the failing banks, which were otherwise riddled with bad debts. And I think you can see today, you know, why banks are so keen to give mortgage holidays, because the banks are on the one hand making a killing on the extra interest that they'll receive from this, but otherwise they were to face an enormous mountain of bad debt from the thousands of people who just simply weren't able to keep up their payments. And for the first time in US history, uh, there was a nationwide system of unemployment benefits and old age pensions were introduced. Now, all of that in total meant a sharp break with the, you know, these previous policies of laissez-faire capitalism, whereby the state mustn't intervene. And it was really a tacit acknowledgement that if left to the mercy of the market, the resulting destitution would ultimately threaten the very viability of the capitalist rule. And therefore, what the capitalists could not do as individuals due to competition and the anarchy of the market, the state would step in to try and do for them. And this was really summed up by Roosevelt himself in 1936. He said, nobody in the United States believes more firmly than I do in the system of private business, private property and private property and private profit. It was this administration which saved the system of private profit and free enterprise after it had been dragged to the brink of ruin. And I think that would do very well for the left reformists today who celebrate Roosevelt and celebrate the New Deal as a model to try and remember that. Now, of course, these policies did have an effect in alleviating some of the worst effects of the depression. So after reaching rock bottom, American GDP did then rise by 34% between 1933 and 37. But however, for a majority of the working class and the poor in the USA, conditions only really went from, from very bad to just bad. So even at its peak, the public works program only employed a quarter of the total unemployed and unemployment in the 30s never actually fell below 8 million people. The minimum wages during this period were only just enough to cover the bare necessities, and those who were on relief, either on work programmes or through social security, fared even worse. And with the economy seemingly back on track by 1937, Roosevelt came under enormous pressure from the capitalist class to return to a policy of balanced budgets. And therefore, when he won the, the presidential election in 36, he then succumbed to this pressure, and in 1937, he scrapped the relief programs and he again raised taxes. And that policy did succeed in reducing the federal budget deficit uh, by 1938. But by switching off the life support to the economy, it resulted in a dramatic fall in economic activity. And that's because really the key question of a lack of profitable markets remained. So production did not reach the levels of 29 until 1941, when unemployment was still at 10%. But really, it was only the impact of the Second World War that really revived the economy. And that's something that Keynes himself would later acknowledge. And it was really only through the military kind of mopping up unemployment, there was a massive expenditure on military production and so on, that ultimately this, uh, this crisis would uh, be ended. Now, as I said at the start, the, the, the important thing for us to understand is the effect on the class struggle. As you know, we always say, it's great events that transform consciousness on a mass scale. And it's this crisis and the collapse in living standards was certainly a huge shock to millions of people, and it would lead to a profound questioning of the system. You didn't immediately see uh, an impact in terms of industrial militancy. It actually took a few years for the initial shock and despair of the crisis to wear off, you know, especially when there was such high unemployment and destitution, that most workers probably didn't want to rock the boat. 
But of course, there was a lot of anger building up, but a lot of people felt powerless to do anything. And that was, of course, linked to a lack of leadership coming from the workers' organisations. But when the economy turned up a little from the depths of 1933, you know, a lot of workers then saw their chance uh, to try and fight back. So in 1933, three, many, uh, three times as many workers went on strike as in the previous year. But the real turning point was in 1934, which saw an explosion of industrial militancy. So previous to then, most struggles involved mainly the organised workers kind of striking to improve or rather even defend their wages and hours. But now from 34, it was the right to organise and union recognition that were the main focus of strikes. Now, the confidence of workers to organise was in part boosted by a provision called Section 7A of this recently passed National Industrial Recovery Act. And this gave, at least on papers, workers, uh, quote, the right to organise and bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing. But despite that right existing on paper, it was routinely ignored by the bosses. And actually there was one capitalist who described this as the most vicious piece of legislation ever enacted. So of course the capitalists enlisted the support of the police, the courts and gangs of hired thugs to viciously smash strikes uh, during this period. Now, remember strikes then, they, they weren't like some of the strikes that uh, we've seen recently and that maybe some uh, comrades here have uh, participated in. You know, these were extremely militant battles. You know, often the police would uh, turn up to open fire at pickets, they'd launch tear gas, they'd send in fascist gangs. Uh, but nevertheless, a series of large strikes uh, developed in the spring of uh, 1934. Uh, in Minneapolis, which was a key distribution city, truck drivers organised a solid strike to demand recognition of the Teamsters Union. Now, after four months and several violent clashes, and I really do mean violent, there was one incident the police shot 67 strikers and killed two of them. The employers finally conceded. In San Francisco, there was a strike of uh, the longshoremen, which is uh, dockers, the union recognition. It ultimately turned into a general strike in July of 1934, and the employers ended up giving in to the union's demands. Elsewhere, there was a strike of uh, 325,000 textile workers in the American South, that very quickly spread nationwide, so that by mid-September, 421,000 textile workers had joined the strike uh, before Roosevelt intervened. Now, many of those strikes in 34, and particularly those in mass production industries, did actually end in failure. But most of that was, uh, was due to the conservatism of the leadership of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, and its policy of organizing workers along craft lines. So, for example, when rubber workers in Akron, Ohio, set up a union on a plant basis, the AFL leadership actually intervened to split up the workers into 19 separate craft locals. And such division would, of course, prove fatal. But, however, with pressure from below, would actually end up transforming the union structures. So over the course of 1934 to 35, hundreds of thousands of workers in mass production industries began to get organised. And, of course, the AFL couldn't simply ignore them. So in 1935, it established a Committee for Industrial Organisation. The idea was to organise workers by industry, so all workers in a single plant would be united together. But still facing resistance by a layer of the AFL leadership, that committee ended up splitting from the AFL in November of 35 to form the Congress for Industrial Organisation, which is known as the CIO. Now, the growth of the CIO was actually spectacular. There was clearly a militant mood that built up in the working uh, class, which was desperate to find an expression. And uh, with the AFL providing little lead, you know, what strikes it did organise, you know, clearly under pressure from below, 
They were characterized by a desire by the leadership to kind of compromise with the bosses at any cost. But in contrast, the CIO was characterized by militancy, by energy, and importantly, it was getting results. And that rise in militancy was reflected in the changing tactics of striking workers. So in the mid 1930s, strikers began occupying their factories in order to prevent the use of scabs. And this tactic was known uh, as the sit-down strike, and it began to quickly spread. So in, in 36, there were only 48 sit-down strikes in the whole of the USA. But by the next year, this had risen to 477. And this included significant battles at General Motors and the Chrysler plants, where the workers were successful in winning union recognition. Now, within four years of its foundation, the CIO organized four million workers, and that included breakthroughs in the auto industry, steel, rubber, and packing houses. But even white-collar workers and agricultural workers were rushing to join the union. And the general rise in militancy also had the effect of whipping the AFL into shape. So by 1939, it then reported four, four million workers, which was the highest level since its 1920 peak. And therefore, the situation was really transformed. And that's something that the left reformists uh, today can't imagine. So in the space of uh, four years from 1933 to 37, the total percentage of workers organized in the USA rose from just 8% to 22%. And that was of course an enormous step forward and an important conquest for the working class. You know, it was described as labor's giant leap. But despite the enormous potential that exists to harness that militancy into a political struggle for socialism, the union leadership still lagged far behind as ultimately they were reformists. You know, they saw the class struggle as being limited to simply the economic struggle. They had no perspective of transforming it into a political struggle for the working class to take power. And they ultimately played the role of dampening the, see, dampening the militancy of the working class. And politically, they simply encouraged workers to support the Democratic Party rather than lead a struggle to create a mass workers' party. Now, Worldwide, the radicalization wasn't just limited to the USA. In Britain, you had the split of the, uh, the ILP from the Labour Party, because you had Labour in power carrying out austerity against the working class. You also had the revolutionary opportunities in France with a wave of sit-down strikes in 36. You had Spain, the, the revolution beginning in 31, and leading to the civil war starting in 36. But also the black reaction in Nazi Germany. You know, all these things, of course, have many factors uh, behind them. But I think the economic depression was clearly important. Now, I'm running out of time, so I just want to kind of end by kind of drawing out what I think are the main lessons. I want to, to very much stress the limits to any historical analogy. And of course, the 30s is not going to look exactly uh, like the period we're in now. But I think, firstly, I would say that, you know, COVID-19 isn't the ultimate cause of this current crisis. The ultimate cause is, is fundamentally capitalism. And I think, just imagine, things would look very different if the system in the world was not run for profit. Uh, secondly, you know, depression is not a one-act drama, nor does it proceed in kind of a straight line of permanent decline. You know, there can be periods of stabilization, like you saw in early 1930, or even temporary recoveries like you had in 33 to 37. And we mustn't let that disorientate us. Uh, you know, it's worth bearing in mind when we, we see the current recovery on the stock exchange, for example, or economists predicting a V-shaped uh, recession. I think that's very much ruled out. You know, there's, there's massive overproduction that's built, built up in the system over years. That's not going to be quickly resolved. Uh, thirdly, as evidenced by the New Deal, the ruling class will go to great lengths to save their system when they feel it necessary. Hence, the trillions that have been spent by governments worldwide recently in trying to prop up uh, their economies. But all these things ultimately have their limits. And I think we're unlikely to see a return of any kind of significant New Deal or Green New Deal. 
You know, whilst the ruling class may well be happy for the state to save them, the problem is the colossal debts that have been built up over the previous period in order to try and get out of the previous crisis. Uh, so look at you know, China, for example, 2008 to nine, they had a, in effect the biggest new deal the world's ever seen. There's that famous statistic that uh, they poured more concrete in China in every three years than the USA did in the whole of the 20th century. But in doing so, they actually quadrupled the state debt so that now the amount of money offered by the government is minuscule in comparison uh, to what uh, came before and also in, in terms of what is needed. I think more likely you're going to see the prospect of government defaults like you saw with Greece, Spain, Ireland, Portugal before, or Argentina recently. And that really means massive austerity will be on the order of the day. Now, fourthly, these events will have a profound Im uh, impact on consciousness. You know, it'll be the working class and poor who will be made to pay for the crisis. In 1930s, it took a few years for, the, for that crisis to be transformed into industrial militancy. You saw the same thing between 2008 and 2011. But now I think it's likely to be far shorter, as that anger has already been built up over the past decade. And actually, for, for many people, the, the struggles facing them are struggles over issues of life and death, you know, kind of, you know, safe operation of workspaces, PPE and so on. And then finally, I think with the rise in the class struggle, we'll see a transformation of the mass organisations of the working class, you know, particularly the trade unions and the political parties. And we, of course, know that the leadership will play a reactionary role in this in general. You know, you've seen the TUC line up recently with the Tories and the CBI to kind of enact class compromise policies. But there will, of course, be rising militancy in the rank and file. And that, of course, will push a section of the leadership to the left, where in other cases, the leadership will be replaced. In workers' parties, I think they're likely to become even more polarised than they are at the moment. You'll see either the development of a, of a left wing, which I think under these conditions will be, could be pushed very far to the left, or if that kind of development is blocked, then you see these parties enter into crisis and you see new formations, either as the result of splits or new parties emerging from mass movements. In other words, a continuation of the processes that, that we've seen over the past decade, but on a much higher level, as the pressure is going to be so much more intense. Now, I think what we could be certain of is that there's going to be no return to, to kind of so-called normality. I think a lot of people still believe that this kind of is a temporary crisis and that once the pandemic is solved, things will go back. But in reality, I think 2020 will be seen really as a kind of fundamental turning point in capitalism's history, very similar to the way that 1929 was. And I think, it, uh, I would again, stress it would be more like the conditions of the 1930s that capitalism will return to, you know, mass unemployment, destitution, than those of uh, more recent history. And I think it's this process that will fundamentally shake up the consciousness of millions of people around the world. And it's this really that's preparing the ground for a social explosion in all countries in which socialism on a world scale will be put firmly back on the agenda. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.